0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Nourish and Flourish is a proud supporter of Heritage Radio Network.
2: Nourish and Flourish. Handcrafted, ad-free. Print and multimedia content from around the world with stunning photography and video. Subscribe at nourishandflourish.site.
0: This week on Meet and 3, we're diving straight no chaser into the delicious crossover of the food and jazz worlds.
3: And I think that sense of nostalgia is what makes it hard to do New Orleans food well, because people just have these memories of these dishes. Certainly people from New Orleans, like, you're never going to make,
2: you know, a gumbo as good as their mother or grandmother made, Right comfort food you gotta get your hands dirty and the jazz musicians it's like it all goes together very well you know
0: check out Meetin' three hrn's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts
1: this is meant to be eaten on heritage radio network i'm your host coralie We're all very concerned, as we heard in the jazz and food intro from Meat Three, with saving food from preservation to curation to nostalgia to archiving to salvation, but Daniel Bender, my guest here today, took a step back to ask, what exactly are we saving food from? Dan is an editor of leading food studies journal Gastronomica, a history professor at the University of Toronto Scarborough, and the author and editor of three books on the history of sweatshops in America. Welcome to the show, Dan.
3: Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: So I also found in my um, poking around about your life and interests that you're also working on a book about the history of American zoos. Um, so what's the through line of all this? American sweatshops, animals, the practice of animal keeping, and decaying food also.
3: Yeah, so the zoo, I guess the biography online is a bit, bit out of date. The zoo book's been out <laughs> for a while. Okay. Um, you, you know what I'm really interested in is, uh, as, a, as a scholar, and I'm working on a book right now on, on food and around-the-world journeys, I'm really interested in general in, in cross-cultural encounters and the dynamic of those encounters. And I guess what's really moving me as a scholar right now is, is the ways in which ordinary people, especially Americans, come to engage with, with the tropical world.
1: Hmm. So let's just jump right in. Um, what are all these different ways that we try to save food and what, what, what does it mean to save food?
3: Well, you know, when the, when the other members of the editorial collective at Gastronomica and I were, were talking about some of our first issues, we got to talking about what, what exactly does it mean to, to save food? Right? At the most banal level, it's what's lingering at, at the back of your fridge that needs to be prepared. On the other hand, we also realize that, that these kinds of questions about what does it mean to save food are great big questions about about that connect heritage, as you guys were already talking about, to dumpster diving, freeganism, and all the other things that are on our minds in a world where, where food is plentiful for some, but the lack of food is really in front of us all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. And so how did you, along with the other members of the collective, identify these anxieties? Um, that exists not only in the heady food studies journal world, but also in kind of weekly grocery (laughs) runs, but also, like you said, um, at the back of the fridge.
3: Well, for me, it all came together because here in Toronto, it's a really snowy day today in Toronto, and I would always come up around this time, about a year ago, I'd always come up from the subway station, and I'd see this poster. And the poster was a... Public announcement type of poster trying to change people 's behavior and it reminded us th- to love food hate waste and it talked about the number of tomatoes that Canadians throw away each day and, and the number was 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 staggering i, I talk about in, in the journal how as i 'd walk home on that that cold cold day uh, days and i 'd count how many tomatoes were were lost, and I divide that across the number of Canadians and realize that Canadians were throwing, at least according to this poster, about a bruschetta's worth of tomato away per person per day. And it, it raised all kinds of questions, right? I mean, why are we even buying tomatoes in the first place in Canada in, in midwinter? Um, and and who's responsible for for the waste of food? Is it the back end individual customer who's tossing tomatoes, or is it a supply chain that pushes tomatoes at us in midwinter in the middle of Canada and, and then I just started we all started thinking, well, what exactly does it mean to save food? Is it just what what my, my friend and colleague Amy Trubeck termed for us all the race against rot, which basically is what cooking actually is, or is it about saving food from, from loss? You know, I mean, any of us who, drive, who love food and who drive around cities or take transit around cities, that moment when your favorite restaurant closes down or the moment when it's just not as good anymore, it feels like you've lost a family member, right? Mm-hmm. But, but why do we feel that, that sense of loss? Around food, and do we always feel like the last meal of a particular dish, the last time we ate it, may be our last time to eat it? And why does that fill us with that incredible sense of of dread? And I feel that all the time, too. Is it because somehow we expect food to to actually sort of save us?
1: Mm -hmm. So um, we were just talking about literal food waste and then kind of getting into our personal. Um, connection to food, but can you kind of unpack um, for in a very simple way um, what preservation and curation and nostalgia and archiving and salvation is? I, I feel like you identified these huge tenets of quote unquote saving food and what they might mean for us.
3: Exactly, and and that was really our goal, and and that's exactly what we wanted to do in bringing together a whole selection of of pieces that do talk about the seemingly mundane act of, of preservation, but maybe the way to get into your question there, Coral, is, is just start with the act of pickling cucumbers. Right? Which is, on one level, on the most simple, everyday level, is saving food. Any of us who shelved a cucumber at the back of the fridge knows that cucumbers don't last very long right It's a few days then they're gone, they're squishy, and you feel terrible, but you toss them um, maybe you're really good and you don't have raccoons living near you like I do, and you put them in the in the the compost right otherwise they're just just a bad mistake in purchase, but others might Take those cucumbers and they put them into, into vinegar, they put some spices in, they put them in a can and it's on the shelf. And that, that is on, on the most basic level that race against rot. The moment you buy food, you, put it into and you put it into a fridge or a cupboard and you're waiting for you're waiting to cook it you're actually racing against its rotting and one of the most remarkable things being a food studies professor for 15 years now is how students are so surprised when stuff goes bad in in the fridge uh, (laughs) that it actually doesn't last forever it just slows down the the rotting process But putting it into pickling the cucumbers is, again, very simply, it's a technological answer to the race against rot. But it's more than that, right? It's putting yourself, for many people, it's putting themselves in a long tradition, a heritage tradition of how to preserve cucumbers. A a tradition that might reach to, for some of our students, central Ontario to the... Mennonite regions of central Ontario where there is a long pickling tradition. Others, it might lead to um, Eastern Europe, again, a place of of long pickling tradition. It's also an act of labor. It's an act often of of gendered labor, right? And who did the pickling in which families? So all of a sudden, that act of saving food becomes connected just simply fighting against rot, becomes an act of, of connecting oneself to it's an act of heritage, if you will, of heritage labor.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's stick with this pickling cucumber uh, kind of case. So yeah. it's very clear that pickling cucumbers kind of helps you fight the race against rot, but what does it help you or the pickler illuminate about food pleasure, food politics, and food production, which are kind of this another layer of tenants that you added on top of the ones I mentioned initially.
3: Yeah, a whole other, whole other layer there, right? Mm-hmm. Is, wh- what is the, what is that, uh, where do we go then from heritage, right? Some of this is, is a question of how we respond. You know, when you decide to pickle the cucumbers yourself, are you responding? Are you using that heritage to respond to the inequalities of of the food chain is your your act of pickling the cucumber or perhaps buying pickled cucumbers at at a farmers market how does that connect to um the 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 ways in which food does get processed and the the race against rot does get won or lost within within the industrial food chain I think there's another angle to this, which is, which is that psychological angle that we often feel that, that we live in a world where food traditions are constantly being lost with each death of a family member, with the, the passing of, of a notable restaurant down the street, right? You feel like those traditions are being lost, and that feels... And I, I think that sense of loss takes on a larger political feeling, right? That it's that political feeling that that somehow we're being overwhelmed by by an industrial food system and that, that somehow it's fighting back to be preserving a set of traditions. The heritage itself becomes then a response to an industrial food system.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but the thing is, it feels like Um, that loss of tradition isn't something that's really new to us, right? It's probably happened for centuries or thousands of years and so why is it that we are especially sensitive to that loss?
3: I agree and I think that maybe, I think there's two answers one is me agreeing with you one might be (laughs) me me saying no, no this is very much of the moment I actually, let's start with the the first of my prevaricating there. The first is that I agree with you, Um, it's It is, has been going on for a long time, and I think you can see that sense of loss in lots of ways in which, um, people have been talking about food. That it's no longer done in the same way that we have lost certain kinds of recipes. And one might, one might argue that the very urge of writing cookbooks as, again, an act of that, that heritage labor is a response to that idea that if we don't write it down now, then it's going to be lost forever. And I think that that's a response that's been there for a very, very long time. But Kira, now I'm going to disagree with you. I think that there is something about about the very state of modernity, the sense of of... Persistent change, a sense that, that time rolls on and that, that the corporate world that surrounds us can be stifling of, of traditions, gives and I think that that acute moment right now is, um, makes this sense of loss very, very profound. And I, my guess, and it'd be fun to do, uh, it, walk up to people on the street and ask them, what name? Tell me a food that you think is going to be lost, has been lost in the fi- last five years, or a recipe that is going to be lost in the next five years. My guess most people have an answer to that. Mm-hmm. And the answers, and they will have very long answers. My grandmother's recipe, maybe the most personal one, her recipe for whatever kind of chicken that we just don't know how to make in the rest of our family, and no one took the time to do it. But it may be even larger. It may be, for example, a particular type of cheese or a type of fish. The other answer that people may give is extinction. We were just talking to my family the other day about whether we like poke bowls, and i I responded by saying like i, I don 't know whether I like them or not; I just feel like it 's not sustainable that the the tuna that is in those bowls that I may enjoy now, each one that I eat is a loss for a future generation. So my guess is in this is again me disagreeing with you if I think that as we think about that nexus of Corporate change, of climate change, of the passing of generations in this particular moment, I think we're very, very focused on loss in our food system.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if I might agree with your disagreeing, I think also (laughs) um, another of the moment trend is this interest in funky food and craft food in natural wine. And so, how do these hobbies and interests, um, you call it, a way of managing decay and a way of savoring dying traditions, can you kind of wax poetic about that as well
3: absolutely, and you know what i 'm going to turn to to uh, the anthropologist Harry West in writing in, in this particular issue of Gastronomica. and Harry uh, writes on cheese, and he uses the cheese the analogy of cheese here in such a fascinating way it kind of kind of blew my mind when the article first came in. Um, Harry was talking about what is cheese, right? Cheese is actually managed decay, if if we really think about it. It's just rotting milk. It's just rotting milk that's actually incredibly tasty because of the ways in which we manage the the decay of cheese. But if we think about this this particular moment of cheese eating that we're in today, I mean, you guys are in Brooklyn, you're in New York, you can... There's all kinds of cheese that, that's being that's available now that wasn't available ten years ago when, or twenty years ago when I moved out of New York City, right? There is that we feel like we're at this moment of incredible creativity in cheese making, but if you ask if you talk to cheese makers, you also get a sense that that, that drive towards creating right? The, the impulse towards creativity in cheese making, the sense that they're doing something more than just making money off of dairy products, that cheese making, artisanal cheese making, or for that matter, artisanal beer making, or artisanal pickling, or, or other kinds of things that are cast as artisanal, are, are a response to loss, right? If you talk to cheesemakers, they will talk about, on the one hand, their incredible optimism about this particularly creative moment in cheesemaking, and in the very same breath, they'll talk about some particular cheese that's no longer made anymore because the pasture in which those cows or goats, sheep uh, grazed on has become a parking lot, or because the last man or woman or whoever who's making those cheese has now retired and just can't do it anymore. And so that mom- that, that intangible cultural heritage has been lost to us forever. So cheese is, I think, a really great example of, of the ways in which we manage decay is the essence of cheese making. But at the same time, that sense of loss can act as a real push towards creativity I mean how many among us, it'd be really interesting again, talk to person on the street, do you feel a urge to pursue certain kinds of cooking certain kinds of preserving techniques and, and how much of that is a response to this impending sense of loss that I think is, is on some level the, the essence of our age
1: Hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And we'll get back to that after a short break.
2: Nourish and Flourish is a handcrafted ad-free integration of print and multimedia content from around the world with stunning photography and video. Explore emerging trends in nutrition, regenerative agriculture, and travel. Nourish and Flourish, thought-provoking content and innovative links to videos allow you to view the future of food and healthy living. Join us on a journey of discovery from the soil to the stars. Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site.
0: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dave Arnold, and I'm the host of Cooking Issues here on Heritage Radio Network. Every week, I answer listeners' questions on the latest innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients in the food world. Have a question about hot rotting your oven to make great pizza? Give us a call. Hydrocolloid, sous vide, liquid nitrogen? No problem. You can find Cooking Issues wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And
1: we're back. Dan ben- Bender and I were just talking about um, how we kind of manage decay through cheese, but also savor dying traditions. Um, and so I wanted to get into um, this thought I had um, in my very small Brooklyn apartment, which is the more limited in space we are, the more space-obsessed we become, and I feel like the more mobile, the more globalized, as you were talking about before, um, the more obsessed we are with regionality and locavorism. So can you talk a bit about our that obsession with preserving regionality and why that matters at all?
3: Yeah. Let me... Let me again do the, the typical academic thing of giving you two utterly contradictory answers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> the 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 positive answer is, I think that there is that sense of of impending the, the, again that that sense of impending loss that we turn to local foods and we feel a commitment to them um, to, to local foods because we feel that that somehow is a response, that indeed our very act of eating those foods is, is a response to, to that if we don't eat them now, that we'll never be able to eat them again, <laughs> right? On the other hand, how should we understand that response to local foods? Is that a sense of cutting ties? Can... can the localism of food be a rejection of, of another kind of, of globalism, of internationalism from from below? Do we turn to, I mean, I've, I've heard this at times in passerbys, I don't want to eat at that Chinese restaurant because the food comes from so far away, I prefer to eat local. So, there's a real tension there, I think, in that that eating of the eating of local as solution to that sense of impending loss.
1: Mm-hmm. We actually want to pick that apart. Is it that the cuisine is so far away or the ingredients are sourced from so far away? So it's like eco-consciousness.
3: Gosh, that is, that's a great question. And I think what often happens is that people feel that, that those two are merged.
0: Mm-hmm. That if
3: the cuisine is perceived as of coming from very far away so too must the ingredients be coming from very very far away you know i had a remarkable experience this this winter sorry this uh, i'm looking outside the window. um and and i was in a supermarket in fairbanks alaska with with my family and and we were wandering around the aisles and totally amazed at, at the kinds of things that we were seeing on the shelves of this supermarket in Fairbanks, Alaska. And among the things on the shelf was a fresh jackfruit, um, which, as you probably know, is not native to Alaska. Uh, and, and I felt remarkably a, a very conflicting feeling. On the one hand the reaction to seeing a jackfruit in a safe way in Alaska is that sense of oh my god this food is so incredibly mobile now. That what is the, What's the carbon footprint of this single solitary innocent jackfruit in, uh, in, in Fairbanks, Alaska and I, I took a picture which I sent to friends as, with the, the subject line, the, the world's most northern jackfruit because um, I, I felt very confident that there probably was not a jackfruit north of Fairbanks in that particular moment in world history, on the other hand, I also felt this incredible sense of joy of the the ways in which this jackfruit was symbolic of this 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 moment of of reaching out of connectivity of a city that is cast as isolated but actually is this incredibly diverse place mm-hmm. and pulling back the layers there are there are now about 20 something Thai restaurants in in Fairbanks Alaska which suggests a city of real interest in cosmopolitan foodways and if you look at what these restaurants are selling and the kinds of food that they're producing they're actually producing exotic ingredients very, very close to home. The lemongrass is grown in in nearby, the herbs are grown nearby, the broccoli that they're doing the the different kinds of ethnically specific crops, if you will, are very very nearby. So I think it's the the takeaway for me there as, as in my own work, I'm really interested in questions of food mobility. The takeaway for me is to try and disaggregate that sense of cuisine as far away from the food, too, must be coming from very, very far away. And why is it that we might see Chinese food or Thai food in Fairbanks, Alaska, as fundamentally not local?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually just about to ask you that. It feels like because you say you, you noticed a rise in Thai populations in Fairbanks, it's almost like the jackroot is kind of native to Alaska and that to um, preserve Alaskan cuisine and culture would necessarily be ignoring a multicultural present. So how do you kind of navigate this?
3: it got it's really, really hard. And I think one of the ways to do it I, I found that if I could pull it back to to our beautiful issue, I found the words of of so Helen Veit, one of our one of the members of the collective, did an interview with uh, two Native American chefs, Sean Sherman and Elizabeth Woody. And and Sean was talking in his interview about the politics behind this this sense of a, a, a Native American cuisine, and one of the things that he talks about is not trying to cook as if it 's fourteen ninety one right <laughs> and which is such a beautiful image right that mm-hmm. that the ways in which part of that act of, of culinary curation of culinary politics i 'm not even sure what you would call it is is an act of trying to figure out what what are the foods that are deeply destructive and what are the foods that are the sources that can be real sources of of, of positive engagement of growth of of, of exciting interaction um, so in, in the case of the jackfruit in Fairbanks, I, I honestly did not know what to do with that. On the other hand, there's, you could see some very, very interesting kinds of encounters. For example, how the local salmon in Alaska is being integrated into migrant Thai cooking. That can be the basis of something really quite well, tasty, but also really quite beautiful. In, does that open up the possibilities of migrant-Indigenous dialogue? Is that an act of, of cultural thieving? Or because we're really talking about two to racialized populations, does this then become the source of, of real positive bridge-building? And I, I actually think that... Um, that it's more the latter than the former. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so then um, in considering the salmon appearing in Thai cuisine, and um, I'm thinking now on, I'm just placing things on the spectrum, there's UNESCO and there's also Sean Sherman's work. Um, How futile is it really to kind of be concerned with the preservation of bio and cultural diversity if all these borders are continually membraneous and shifting?
3: Beautiful. First of all, I I tend to think in my own mind, I tend to think that there is a world of difference between what Sean Sherman is doing and what, say, the government of Japan in declaring Washoku a a, a, a piece of culturally intangible heritage. There's a world of difference between those two things, right? On the one hand, I think what Sean Sherman is doing is using... Saving food. And here he's talking about food preservation techniques. He's talking about the saving of culinary traditions. He's talking about um, engaging in seed saving and wild food and different forms of agriculture. As the ways in which food can actually save us, I think he's doing that in a deeply creative way, and he's using that on a very grassroots way of creating a set of conversations about the meanings of history, the realities of genocide, and so on. I think that's a big difference than the very kind of top down thing that happens as we declare food to be culinary heritage. Mm-hmm right? That that can be an act of exclusion. That can be a moment of pushing a, a pause on history itself, right? Anything that comes after this can no longer be included in our culinary heritage, mm-hmm. right? And that can be, that can lead to all kinds of different effects, right? Time doesn't stop in 1491 for Sean Sherman, and he's very, very clear about that. Time continues, and we, we grapple with, if we're rejecting certain things like sugar, which is something that he, he takes a great big aim at in his interview, then that's, that that's a political rejection of a particularly kind of destructive food, but not of different kinds of food ways. I see no antipathy in, in what he's doing and in, as he talks about food towards, for example, m- migrant or immigrant food ways, the different ways in which different migrant groups engage with indigenous plants like, say, chilies or potatoes or tomatoes, for that matter. I see a rejection of particular kinds of foods that have particularly destructive kinds of histories. As opposed to a, this is part of our culinary tangible heritage, and this is clearly not. Mm-hmm. And that, that, one one can be an act of inclusion, and the other can be an act of, well, exclusion, right? Of of rejection of of diasporic populations, of all kinds of things that we see in the larger political world, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Sean's active rejection of sugar um, I'm sure does something to kind of reify his own culinary identity, but does food, I'm going to throw your question back at you, which is, does food, Mm -hmm. its traditions, its materials, and its products need saving by us?
3: Yeah, and who's the us there, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Again, that's the total uh, cop-out of the academic. Who's (laughs) us? Um, (laughs) But I think I, I think it's yeah, sure. Why not? Can we can we save and preserve tradition at the same moment that we enable um, that we enable change and recognize change? I, I, if I can be totally autobiographical here, my background is Eastern European Jewish. My family traces their roots as immigrants into the United States for for a very long time, you know, long ago. And we cook no Eastern European Jewish food, essentially. My mother occasionally would make the odd matzo ball soup, and at times it could be a fairly odd matzo ball. That's sort of it. So is that a sense of loss? Well, in a way, if I look at my own family food traditions we've engaged with a whole other set of traditions there's nothing more traditional in my family than a sichuan style duck which my mother learned to make decades ago and i have occasionally made myself so and that itself is not that's not unique to my family that's about a larger historic jewish engagement with the with uh, East Asian foodways, which some have argued actually was, was not just a, a culinary curiosity, but was also a political sympathy. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes a ton of sense to me. And in fact, I think as I look at my own family and their own progressive political traditions, the excitement in my family with, with taking on other kinds of foods as, as tradition. Um, as, as individual tradition, engaging with other kinds of traditions, is, is politically grounded. For me, as I, as I think about what I'm going to make for my own daughter for dinner tonight, it's a dish that's you know, deeply, deeply grounded in work, in work reasons. We tend to spend a lot of time. Nobody in my family has ever lived in Italy. We have no Jewish heritage whatsoever, and yet here I am cooking a traditional uh, northern Italian rabbit dish for for my daughter and it, it becomes then the stuff of tradition I, I see that as kind of well, it's very exciting and it's very open and I think it speaks to that idea that if we're saving food can, can we use that to to save us mm-hmm. to bring it all back to, to Sean Sherman yeah I, I think that that's I think that he sees the act of saving food. It's partly that's the rejection of of sugar. Partly it's the injection of of what he sees as particular colonial foods, wheat flour, processed cane sugar, dairy. He sees those as really saving us. So if he's reviving something, if he's articulating something, if he's if he's opening up a discussion about reviving Native American cuisines, he is seeing that as saving foods, saving us. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think Sean's experience is very unique to him. So So how would saving food, or even just the act of cooking rabbit for your daughter tonight, how does that work to save you?
3: Well, I think by the fact that it's more than just dinner. It's a meal, if I can be just totally personal about it, just the individual salvation that comes from that. Cold Sunday night before school, the fact that we've done something, it's not just cooking a protein, but we're cooking a protein as a particular dish, grounded in a particular place, grounded in a shared experience here of family, grounded in a place that we like. I know what we're going to talk about. As we sit down to dinner tonight we 're going to be talking about um, different people that we 've seen there we 're going to be talking about different preparations of rabbit we 're going to be well talking <laughs> you know and using the food to to really have a, a discussion about about um, a, a set of shared experiences and and we 'll be better for it and I think i 've cooked it. Kind of well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a perfect way to end our episode. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dan.
3: Thanks so much, Coral. I love the show. I've really enjoyed listening to it. And I'll continue to do so. Thanks a lot.
1: Meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place